Welcome to The Forest Garden, a podcast for gardeners who want to upgrade their landscapes into biodiverse food forest systems. On today's episode of The Forest Garden, we'll be interviewing Henry Lappin of Cherry Hill Co-Housing in Amherst, Massachusetts. Last fall, as part of my landscape architecture degree program, I had the opportunity to visit Cherry Hill. Henry gave me a tour of the grounds, the community center, the houses, and other facilities. What really stood out to me was the landscape, a food forest layered throughout the small town center with edibles everywhere you look. Today, we'll find out about the co-housing model, how the food forest on the property came to be, and what day-to-day life is like in a co-housing community. Stick with us. So why don't we just start off with why you wanted to be a part of a co-housing community in the first place? Yeah, I'm Henry Lappin. I was uh, born in Boston. And I mean, I grew up spending a lot of time in the woods, but I didn't, we never had a garden growing up or anything like that. And then I moved to Vermont. And at one point I was living in a cabin in the woods and started, I had my first garden and then got involved with a, an anarchist collective. And we were looking to create a community and that never materialized. By then I had met my partner and we ended up getting married and having kids. You know, the dream of community never left, but I didn't have, I didn't see an opportunity to do that. And then we heard about co-housing and got involved in a group in Brattleboro, Vermont, where we were living. And that group fell apart. And I had met somebody who was part of Pioneer Valley Co-housing, which we now call Cherry Hill Co-housing. And he encouraged me to come down and check it out. And we did, and we decided to move here. So. And this was around like the early 90s. Is that correct? Yeah, we moved in in 94. So we got involved in 93. The, the group started meeting, I think, in 88 or 89, you know, started finding enough people and planning and making all the decisions. And so we joined a year before moving. They already had the land and the design for the houses and things. Gotcha. So we moved in. My kids were one and four years old in 1994. And yeah, they grew up here. And the house we lived in in Vermont before we moved here was just gorgeous trees everywhere around us. We moved here and it was a construction site. There was no trees, no grass, no nothing. The topsoil had been plowed down to the bottom and while well, all the construction happened, and then the contractor plowed the topsoil back and then hydro-seeded grass. You know, I was desperate for trees and bushes. So we hired David Jackie. He was a landscape architect. And then it fell to me to be the person to put that into practice. So we moved in summer of 94, the spring of 95, we planted 200 bushes and trees and uh, the whole community came out and we were all digging and planting and watering. And yeah, it was beginning of uh, what we have now. Yeah. I imagine the, the initial move in with that landscape being like it was, was pretty stark before we get into that, um, which I'd like to hear more about what that was like. Why don't we sort of describe what the co-housing model is for those of us who might not know for listeners? So co-housing is the way I describe it. It's a cross between a condo and a commune. So legally we're a condominium. We have a condominium association and bylaws and all that. And we share a lot more than most condos do, but we don't share an ideology. We don't share money. So we're not communal in that way. So the ways we do share, we have two meals a week. We have a big community house. The houses on average are smaller than typical American houses here. We do self-management. So we do our own bookkeeping. We do our own landscaping, our own plowing and lawn mowing and 
we have a building which called the annex which has a wood shop in it so we can do carpentry work and we all know each other and the other thing about co-housing it's all designed to encourage interaction so where we lived in vermont it was gorgeous but you know we had neighbors but we didn't really know them we would wave to them as they drove down the street you know that was about it so here you park on the outskirts and you have to walk to your house so you're going to run into your neighbors walking up the path to the houses or to get your mail you have to go into the community house so it's just it's all designed around interacting and running into people yeah that sounds like such a paradigm shift from the standard experience of growing up in the nuclear family in suburbia or wherever I mean, just like you said, most people don't know their neighbors. I'd like to hear more about the community house and the housing. Community house also has guest rooms and has a masonry heater. So we have the wood stove experience, which we don't have in the houses because it's it's clustered housing. That's the other thing. So um, I don't know if all co-housing places are that way, but we own 23 acres and the houses and all the buildings and roads are, are clustered into four acres. The rest is zoned for open space and we can't build on it. Right. There's a decent amount of land that's set aside for natural forested areas and areas for agriculture and sort of agroforestry practices. Right. Yeah. And then partly because I was on the landscape committee and wanted lots of wildlife and lots of trees, you know, we're, we're quite heavily planted. So there's lots of bushes and trees. Most of them either provide edible fruit or provide fruit for wildlife. You know, you go to the typical condo association place and there's just a lot of open space and a lot of lawn we have quite quite a small amount of lawn considering there's 32 families we're 32 households different age ranges different economic status um, some racial diversity we tried for more and we don't have that much yeah but the landscaping is quite quite thick and quite lush so you don't feel neighbors right looking in your window which when we first moved in we did feel that way yeah, when I had the opportunity to visit, I was pretty impressed with how the vegetation really defined the spaces and sort of created, you know, a small backyard and what otherwise would be a pretty open communal landscape. Yeah, and, you know, because it's a clustered housing, we don't have big yards for each house. So you have a small yard defined by the landscaping, as you said, and uh, yeah, it's all sort of public space. We, we do divide loosely into private areas, so you wouldn't necessarily walk right next to somebody's house where there's plantings around the back of their house. But you might walk through an area that's a little bit more open. Yeah. And then there's communal areas that are clearly communal. In early days, we had more kids. We often have pickup games of whatever, soccer or ultimate Frisbee. And the community house is where everybody gathers for the communal meals that they participate in for how many hours is it a month? The work requirement, everyone's required to work on an average of six and a half hours a month. So some people do a lot more, some do the six and a half, some do less for a period of time because they're not able to, and then do more when they can. So it's, it's all different, but we have teams of three that cook every meal, team of three that does clean up and one person that sets up. So every first Monday, there's a crew that does all that. And every, you know, second Wednesday is another crew, you know, and then, um, we use sociocracy or dynamic governance. So there's four main circles and everyone's part of one circle. So the PALS is plants, animals, and landscape. That's the circle that I do most of my work in. So we meet, we plan the gardens and what other, you know, 
what new trees we're going to plant, things like that. If we're going to expand the orchards or if somebody wants to raise animals, we discuss that. Um, there's a common house circle. They plan how the common house is going to look, if new furniture is needed, if the meal situation is going to change. There's um, community life, which organizes events. We do a retreat in the community once a year where everyone gets together and we bring up topics that we don't have time to do in regular meetings. They also deal with, you know, interactions between people. If you have a problem with your neighbor, there's a group you can go to that's part of the community life circle and they'll help. And then there's buildings and grounds. So they take care of, uh, we own a truck to do the plowing and things and roofs or hire someone to do the roofs, that sort of thing. Gotcha. So it seems like everyone can kind of find their niche and stick with the thing that they like to do, which is pretty, pretty rare in terms of, you know, a community of any kind that there's that opportunity. Yeah. I mean, earlier we, we had different work systems early. We had a system where you were on a team of 10 people, I think, and uh, there were six teams and each team rotated through the different jobs. So one month you might just be in charge of cooking all the meals. And then the next month you might be in charge of landscaping and the next one, you know, yeah, some people weren't, you know, weren't really fond of doing the outdoor work or the cooking. So we started, we changed the system to, you know, an affinity system. So you sign up for the things you like, and there's a small group that sort of manages that and makes sure all the jobs get done. So if, you know, we need some help with something, a landscape task, we can go to that group and say, we need someone to do this job and they'll find someone to do that. They'll say, Oh, Fred, you're not working that much. You're looking for work. Here's a job. Would you like to do that? That sort of thing. Very interesting. So I'm interested in what other sorts of community events happen in the community center or just in the community as a whole. Occasionally we've had dances and parties, a few weddings. Some of the kids who grew up here got married and had weddings here, bar mitzvahs, funerals and memorial services. And each one of us can reserve the common house if it's not being used for something else. So I'm a tango dancer. So I bring my tango group here once a year and I you know, rearrange the whole common house and clear out all the tables from dining and we have a big dance in the place. Other people, choruses have met and practiced and then do shows for us. Uh, there was a concert series before COVID. Once a month there'd be a concert here and, you know, it was open to the public so people from outside would come. Gotcha. Is it true that Cherry Hill Co-housing or previously known as Pioneer Valley Co-housing, was, was it the first co-housing community on the East Coast? Yes, we were the first one east of Boulder, Colorado. Because these days it seems like there's quite yeah. there's a quite the interest in Western Massachusetts and in New England in general for co-housing as a model. And there's lots of folks who are interested in it and interested in how they could, you know, start one up. Yeah, I think there are 18 in Massachusetts alone. So, but, you know, it's challenging. The work of developing a, a site and getting all the people together and raising the money and you know, it's a lot of work and um, not all groups like the group we were part of in Brattleboro fell apart. We couldn't quite get enough of a mass of people to do it. Yeah. So maybe we should talk about that just a little bit more. Let's say that somebody wants to start their own co-housing community. What exactly does that entail in terms of getting the money together and getting the zoning or finding the land, et cetera? Yeah. Well, there's, there's also, there are groups now that help to organize that. There's a book called the co-housing handbook maybe based on co-housing started in Denmark. And so they studied that and studied the communities that were forming in the United States and developed a, a handbook. And there are other groups too. There's co-housing.org, I guess. We're co-housing.com, but uh, 
Causing.org is a national co-housing association. So a lot of people to get involved, to get started, join that. And there's workshops you can learn about causing and meet people who are interested, things like that. But, you know, basically you have to find a cluster of people, or at least a, a, crumb, a core group to get started and then start coming up with bylaws and plans and how many houses you want. And then you need to find land and hire an architect to develop it or get legal things. So we were interested in the cooperative model, but just too difficult for banks to deal with that. And the laws were much more complex. So doing a condo, banks understand condos. So that was an easy way to do it. So it's it's really finding the community first and then everything else, making everything else fall into place. Yeah, at least finding a core group. Our group started because one couple put an ad in the Valley Advocate. This was before internet, right? They got a few couples. They met over four or five years and slowly built a bigger group and looked at land and they found a piece of land in Levered and tried to develop it. And then that fell through. And then some people left and other people joined and then they found the land in Amherst. Gotcha. So it all, it all came together yeah. after, after a few yeah. attempts. Okay. So I want to talk about the plants. I guess the, the last thing before we talk about the plants, would you say there's any downsides to living in co-housing? Is there anything about it that you wish you could have done differently? Yeah, well, it's one thing. We tried to develop a, a plan to keep housing prices from rising with a, some sort of limited equity. And the model that we used, uh, I don't, it's kind of complicated to get into, but it didn't work. And so the housing prices are going up market value and it's getting more difficult for a mix of people of different economic ability to move in here. Housing prices, when we first moved in, were fairly affordable. And we worked really hard at keeping construction costs down so we could, you know, stay with the, with the costs that we decided to do with the maximum. But then, you know, people move out and sell the houses and they get appraised higher and higher. And so Amherst is quite an expensive town to live in now in a way that it wasn't 30 years ago. So, I mean, so that I wish we had really developed something that worked for limiting the equity in the houses. Because if our model succeeds and ours has, right? We didn't know that 30 years ago, but if it succeeds, it didn't succeed because somebody fixed up their house and made it fancier and better. It succeeded because all of us together have put a lot of effort into this community. And so some of that benefit should come back to the community rather than to the individual who leaves. And so the way that the model was originally set up is that everybody would own their home and ownership would be, you know, the, there's duplexes and single homes and triplexes, but each one of those units is owned by the person who buys into it. And so therefore, at any time, they could decide to move out and sell. Yeah. So if they sell, the community can find the buyer for the first month and arrange the sale. So we choose who moves in. If we can't find anyone, then it can go to the open market. But anyone who moves in has to agree to our bylaws and all that. That's, you know, they have to become part of the community. What I've learned is it's not for everybody. You know, some people left after you know a few years or after 10 years you know it's, it's challenging you have lots and lots of people around and you have to you don't have to like them all you don't have to agree with everything but you have to be able to get along and you have to be able to make decisions together you know there's a lot of meetings and so when folks moved in back in 1994 the vast majority of folks were people like you who had young children so the age range was i think uh 29 to maybe 80 or late 70s. 
And one of the problems has been we've been a little too successful. So, you know, over half of us are still here. And that means that half at least is 30 years older than they were before. And then new people have moved in. Some of them are older also. We do have a couple of young families again. But at one point, you know, we had 30 kids under 10 when we moved in. And then we had like one kid under 10 for a while. And now we have a few new kids that have moved in. So, you know, it's challenging to try to figure out how to keep. And this happens in towns also, in small towns and the hill towns. Often they just get older and older and young people aren't attracted there anymore. So that's one of our challenges now. When a house comes on the market, we're trying to find young families to move into those houses. Yeah, I can imagine it would be an amazing place to grow up as a kid where all of your friends are your neighbors and probably feel more like cousins than neighbors. And there's playgrounds and, you know, fresh vegetables being grown and community meals and everything. It sounds really idyllic. And most of the kids have, you know, multiple parents at this point. One day, this was years ago when we had a lot of kids, my neighbor called up and he was looking for his son. He says, my son there. I was like, no, my kids weren't home at the time. I was home alone. But I hung up and then I heard a noise and I turned around and a different boy from the community had come into the house and was playing with my kids' toys. <laughs> so it's that sort of thing where all the kids know many, many parents. You know, we're pretty open with each other's houses. So if I need a lemon, I know I can go into someone's house and grab a lemon from their fridge. <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny, but it's like we have that, that comfort with each other and the kids get that. It's like growing up in a really big family. That's, uh, that's very cool. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the plants. You had the landscape architect who wrote the book on edible forest gardens, uh, Dave Jackie. And then after he left and planted all the stuff, it seemed like really the the hard part, which is cultivation and everything else that comes with forest gardening fell on you and the rest of the, the circle or the team involved with the landscape. When I had the opportunity to visit, I was really blown away by the Turkish hazelnuts and lots of the plants that we looked at. Let's just dive into that a little bit, and then we can talk some about some of the specific plants. So David Jackie came up with this plan based on you know things that we had said. We wanted it to be somewhat wild. We wanted it to be bird-friendly, and we wanted edible landscaping. He developed the plan, and um, I had planted some trees. I mean, I, I didn't have that much experience, and, but I had more than anyone else, So, and also it was my interest. So here's this plan on paper, and I'm going around putting stakes in the ground where he said we should plant a tree and we had ordered all the trees and everything. So the trees are coming, you know, any day and I'm putting stakes in the ground. This is where this tree is going to go. This is where that tree is going to go. And everyone had seen the plan, but people don't really understand it. So some of my neighbors were like, wait, you don't, we didn't say we could put a tree outside my house. It's like, yeah, it's in the plan. It's right here. It's like, well, I don't want a tree there. You know, it's like, well, the trees are already coming. We've already paid all this money for trees. Right. It was kind of funny. And then so we moved things around, but, you know, we we made it work. Yeah. Then when you plant things, you see they don't all survive. Most of our trees survived. Some didn't. And then other trees, you know, seeds come in and start sprouting. So you have volunteer trees and bushes, and then you have invasive plants that come in like bittersweet and things. And so some of it is just, you know, ornamental and edible landscaping plants around the houses. Like we have a lot of Juneberry um, hazelnuts, as you mentioned, but then we also have an orchard and that's a whole nother, uh, you know, whole nother task that I'm involved with. So managing the orchard, some trees don't make it. Some trees do really well. You know, some years you get a lot of fruit. Some years like last year, we got no fruit because the squirrels ate it all. So we're trying to figure out how to trap the squirrels. You know, it, it becomes quite involved. 
I can imagine because yeah. the entire it's like the entire four acres at least of where the houses are is just an agroforest. It's like every you know there's a fruiting shrub or a fruiting uh, tree everywhere you look. Yeah, yeah. So it's beautiful. Um, you know, and then the other thing is, you know, it takes a while for things to get established. So the first five, 10 years, it still looked pretty stark. It wasn't as bad as when we moved in, but it was still pretty stark. I don't know, maybe around year 15, like suddenly everything just started to grow super fast. You know, it was all established. And so most of my time now is not planting new things. It's cutting things down, you know, cutting branches that are too close to the house or removing some trees that it's just, it's just too thick in places, right? So it's, it's interesting to have watched that struggling to get and people saying we want more trees and now it's like there's too many trees right trees get very very big i think that's one thing people don't realize i don't think i even realized how quickly and how big they get it's like you're trying to manage like a mid-succession forest it's a good way to put it yeah or like yeah. the most pr productivity wants to develop. it's really cool i mean honestly i was i was blown away especially by the pecan tree and well, I guess I should ask you, I mean, what, what are some of your favorite trees that have, I mean, you, you planted them and have gotten to watch them grow the way somebody watches their kid grow over the past almost 30 years. So what are the, what are the standouts for you? I've always loved linden trees. I, I lived in Burlington, Vermont, and I remember I didn't know what these trees were, but I remember walking down the street at the end of June, early July, and this perfume smells like, what is that? And it was the linden trees. And so the linden tree, I had a linden tree right outside my house and it was just, it smelled heavenly. It's actually interesting because there's a percentage of people who cannot smell that smell, mm. uh, which I don't understand because it's overwhelming to me. But the linden tree next to my house died and I was like, oh no, you know, we had a big gap and now suddenly I'm seeing my neighbor's house, which, you know, I had this thing, sort of this barrier between us. So I planted another tree and meanwhile, the linden came back from the roots. It was like, oh, okay, you know, I didn't. I knew about that could happen. I didn't know it was going to happen there. So, you know, that's a kind of interesting thing. I love the hazelnut trees. We planted them because that was on Dave Jackie's plan. It was really an, or they're an ornamental tree. And I didn't think about the nuts. And then maybe around year 10, it was like I was walking under the tree and there were these spiny things on the ground. I said, what are these? And I realized they were hazelnuts, right? So since then, I've harvested hazelnuts almost every year. Some years they don't produce. And they're great. So um, they're really quite tasty. We have black walnuts, which are a lot more work, but uh, we have those. We planted northern pecan trees, which are beautiful trees, but after 20 years, they still hadn't produced. And all of a sudden, one year, there were a few nuts out there. So they're tiny. They're probably marginal in terms of food value, but uh, they taste like you know, pecans and they're quite tasty. So I love the nut trees. I love growing nuts. The fruit trees, you know, I we originally planted mostly apples and then uh, the apples are just a lot of work. And, you know, if you don't spray them, which I don't like to do, then even if you do organic sprays, it's, it's just a lot of work to get good apples and the peaches we're producing fantastic with almost no work. So we've switched more to peaches at this point. I think some of the peach diseases, brown rotten things are, are taking off a lot more in the Valley because people are planting them so much more. When we first started planting peaches, there weren't a lot of peaches growing in this area. So, you know, you learn by doing. And, uh, you know, Asian pears weren't very common 29 years ago. And now, you know, everyone loves Asian pears and we've planted them. You know, berries, we have blueberries, raspberries, currants, quite a variety of, of different berries and things.
my favorite plant, I think when you came, I mentioned the American Spice Bush. Mm-hmm. They're a gorgeous plant. They're mostly considered a wetland plant. That's where you see them growing in nature, but they grow on our upland dry soil and um, the berries are delicious. I use them instead of like allspice or cinnamon. And the birds love them. Thrushes come in and eat all the berries that I don't eat. They're just gorgeous, gorgeous plants. Beautiful yellow foliage, bright red berries in the fall. Yeah, you were telling me that you make um, like breads out of them, right? Well, I, I flavor breads with them or oh. muffins or, you know, pies and things like that. I always throw a bunch in a pie. Because to me, it's like, I mean, eating one raw, not the seed or the pit rather, but just the flesh around it. It's like a, it's a pretty powerful flavor. I mean, it's like a really, really stark, almost like pepper, peppery flavor. So when you said that to me, I was imagining like, oh my God, how is like, what is the flavor like in in a, in a baked product? But if it's your favorite thing then I I trust you. If I make a batch of a dozen, dozen muffins with say blueberries or currants, right. And I put in three or four of those berries chopped really fine. The the whole thing, not just the flesh on the outside that has the perfect amount of flavor. It's like adding cinnamon or allspice to a recipe or nutmeg maybe. Very interesting. So, and for the for our listeners, uh, the hazelnut trees are Turkish hazels, which are a popular street tree in Germany, and maybe becoming a little bit more popular in the U.S. But most people, when they think of a hazelnut, they think of American or European hazels, which are more of a shrub. This is a fully grown tree that can grow to be like forty feet tall and has this beautiful pyramidal habit. Yeah, I, I imagine it was pretty yeah. cool to see the, the the nuts under it. How, how do you process those? How do you um? What do you do to to eat those? Uh, the biggest problem is gathering them before the squirrels do, right? But uh, they produce in a good year. They produce so many that uh, so I bring them inside, and then um, when the husks start opening up, I I husk them all, and then I you let the nuts cure for a few months, you know, until they get uh, riper. So I put them on cookie sheets and put them in just a warm, dry area and let them dry out. And then then when I'm going to use them, I roast them and then crack them with a nutcracker. I don't have any fancy equipment. You know, we don't have quite enough. That's the problem. Growing nuts is a lot of work. If you have, you know, the equipment that they would use in a commercial operation, well, you need a lot more trees and a lot more nuts to be able to make that worthwhile. But just to, you know, have a bowl of, hazelnuts on the counter and you know my friends come over we sit around and crack nuts and chat eating nuts um i grew up you know my grandmother always had a container of nuts on the table you know walnuts and pecans and all sorts of nuts and um we'd sit around the table and it's slow food it's like not if you have a bag of chips right you're at a party and bag of chips the chips are gone in five minutes but the nuts, it takes a little time. So you sit and you talk, you crack the nuts open. I think it's a really healthy, healthy snack food, healthy way to eat and to eat with other people. I totally agree. And my grandmother had a, a the same thing, table with the nuts on it. I feel like that's just like a, a maybe a lost tradition. And I there's hazelnuts that grow on the rooftop garden uh, at um, in the design building at UMass. And I'm like the only weirdo who's harvesting the, the hazelnuts from that tree and doing exactly that, bringing them home to sit in a bowl. Sometimes I wonder, though, if my grandparents just sort of had that for ornamentation but, or like as an ornamental thing in the living room or if they, you know, because I don't ever remember anyone eating it besides the kids where, where it was like a fun activity to crack the nuts. Oh, no, no. My uncle was always cracking. My father, too. We, we were always cracking nuts and eating them. So, but um, one thing, getting back to the hazels, the American hazels, the nuts are really small 
and I found, especially now that I have the bigger hazels that the Turkish produces, it's not really worth planting American hazel if you want it for human food. You know, the squirrels are going to love it, the turkeys love it, but for people, they're kind of marginal, I think. But hazel birds or, um, you know, the European hazels you can get as a bush. And uh, the hazel birds actually are much easier to crack open and to husk. So that's a plus for them. They don't taste quite as good as the Turkish ones, but they're they're quite they're pretty good. We got it live from Henry Lappin. The Turkish hazel is the is the best hazel of them all. Apparently, it's exciting. And I've encouraged that I'm uh, the chair of the tree committee in Amherst, which is a town tree committee, the Amherst Public Shade Tree Committee. And I was pushing for us to plant the Turkish hazels, and we did. We couldn't find any in nurseries at the time, so we got little tiny ones, and we developed them in our own nursery. And we planted them along the street. So there's places in the town of Amherst you can drive down the street and see a Turkish hazelnut tree and gather the nuts yourself. That's fantastic. I guess, yeah, I'll have to find those trees. How long does it take for them to produce? Maybe like 10 years? Yeah, yeah. That's also the advantage of the hazel birds producing three or four years. And just a note about what exactly a hazel bird is for those of our listeners who might be interested. It's essentially a hybrid between the Italian red filbert, Coralus avalana, and the American hazelnut, Coralus americana. It has kind of a complex parentage and was developed in New York State in the 1920s by a fellow named Fred Ashworth. So any other standouts besides the, the, the nut trees or the, and the spice bush? Are there any other of your favorite not only favorite like tree fruits or nuts, but the stuff that you process them into, like, uh, you know, the foods that you make from them. Yeah, I mean, I eat almost everything, right? So um, we've planted black haw viburnum, a little tiny bluish berry, mostly seed. And I think they're out of this world. You have to wait until there's a hard frost and then get them before the squirrels again or the birds. But they're absolutely delicious, but you wouldn't. You know, there's not really much food on them. I don't think you could really, you couldn't, certainly couldn't bake a pie with them. You'd need, you know, a million, right? <laughs> but I love, they're interesting bushes. They produce a nice hedge, which is good for birds. The birds like to eat the berries too. Yeah, what else? Um, I don't know. Well, we, we make maple syrup here also. So we have some sugar maple trees that we've planted and some that were here before we moved in. I mean, I like all trees. Now I've been, uh, we've been starting to plant tulip trees and thinking more about Southern trees. Yeah, and with this abnormally warm winter that we've had, I'm sure that everybody in the community is starting to think about plants that might migrate north a little bit. Yeah, so you know, to think about helping them migrate north by planting them ahead of time. We just did a huge invasive removal project from our woodlands. Um, we got a grant from the USDA for part of it, and uh, we're trying to figure out something's going to grow this. So we're trying to plan what's going to, we have another year of removing invasives before we can plant, but we're starting to think ahead about what we're going to plant and will we plant more Southern species or, you know, that's another whole huge project that we've embarked on. Well, Henry, thank you so much. Before we part ways though, is there any sort of last advice that you could give to folks who after hearing this podcast episode might be interested in pursuing co-housing in their life or in their community or creating their own co-housing community? So if you're interested in co-housing, me or one of the other people in the community will offer tours, but I highly recommend the cohousing.org. It's easy to find and there's just a lot of resources there that, I mean, I've lived it, I have some of the knowledge, but 
they really work on helping groups get started. Yeah, just one last thing about landscaping. I advise to start small. <laughs> Don't try to do too many acres all at once, you know. Start with a small project, try a few trees of this or that, and try a variety of things because some things may or may not work on your site. I hope that folks who hear this episode will be inspired to maybe check out the co-housing model and see if it works for them. And as someone who has been to Cherry Hill co-housing, it is really, really, really incredible. And this audio didn't really paint as beautiful as a picture as it, as it really is when I visited. So I hope that some folks might reach out and maybe get a, get a tour in the spring. Yes, thank you. And yeah, come back and visit again, Michael. Thanks so much, Henry. Have a good one.